this is getting crazy out there. How are we going to remember what we were actually doing at that period in time? I mean, it's it, it, it's moving that fast. It's like me stitching up my hand after I've cut it. I mean, I might be able to do it, but I'm probably going to lose my arm. Hey, Rick Bicotta, Greg Henry, the May issue of Risk Management Monthly coming to you. Uh, we've been promising our guest, Mark Calvert, and he's with us as well on the Skype um, broadcast today. Mark's a, an attorney from Houston. He does medical board issues and malpractice issues. Uh, we were introduced to Mark uh, through Amoma 2, who did a case with Mark. So, Mark, welcome. Thanks very much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. Yeah. It's great to be back. Yeah, we don't want you to be as smart as you were the last few times <laughs> because people then talk and say, Henry, why do you why are you two guys even on this thing? Just turn it over to Mark. But treat us as sort of dumb country doctors and, and we'll do the best we can here. All <laughs> That's right? a deal. Okay, now, we'll do it. We were gonna have Mark basically run with the ball for this uh uh, session, but in the meantime, we got a couple of things that came in that we would like Mark to comment on. First of all, uh, New Jersey Malpractice Executive Order 112 indicated that any clinician practicing outside the scope of their ordinary practice shall be immune from civil liability for any damages alleged to have been sustained as a result of the individual's acts or omissions. So, let's talk about talking about working outside their ordinary practice. Uh, you're kind of uh, cleared for you know, malpractice. Such immunity, however, shall not extend to acts of omission that constitute a crime, actual fraud, act, uh, actual malice, gross negligence, or willful uh, misconduct. So basically, this is this, all of this comes to say, New Jersey, during this period, where they have declared an emergency, uh, clinicians are free of, unless you do gross negligence, uh, which is actually, isn't that the standard now in, in Texas, Mark, gross negligence? Yeah, in Texas, if you are treating an emergency condition on a patient in the emergency room, they have to prove that negligence by a gross negligence standard, willful and wanton negligence. Yeah, that's right. true. And and shooting the patient is okay too in Texas. So I mean, it's it's one of those things. We should always remember that you, the defense for a doctor is, well, what the hell could I have to do? I had to shoot the son of a bitch, you know. So well, we're not quite right. that bad, but uh, if you're in fear for your life, it's a judgment call, right? Well, let me let me ask a question as as the layman looking at this and having listened to the governor of New York. Uh, Mr. Cuomo talking about, come on down, you doctors, you nurses, you this. We want you to come here and work in New York. Uh, New Jersey did the same thing, and they've exempted you from liability. They can't exempt you from reasonableness, which means if the patient comes in with a cut finger and you decide to cut their head off, uh, they don't exempt you from that sort of thing, right? It's just medical malpractice kinds of decisions, but it's not reasonable, ordinary negligence, is it? 
You know, when you sent that to me, Rick, uh, I kind of swallowed hard because there's a tension here between healthcare providers doing their darndest in a tough situation and then errors happening and people dying. And it's going to attract the lawyers like flies to, to poop. And so, you know, you're raising some very good points. No, they can't remove the requirement of reasonableness. And that's what it's going to boil down to. That's the umbrella over all of this. And we talk about it, you know, regularly when I'm when I'm with you guys. Um, what is the reasonable thing to do? What would your peers do? What do you want to be said about your efforts a year from now or two years from now when you're in front of a jury or in front of the medical board? And it's going to boil down to did you act reasonably? Um, I I like that they're trying to protect healthcare providers with with legislation, but um, it's it's sometimes uh, a square peg into a round hole. It doesn't fit very good in certain fact situations, and that's when the lawyers can have a field day on both sides. To what degree are we under uh, the duress of the CDC, which issues these interim guidelines? They they issued one February 8th. Uh, they did another one at the uh, beginning of March. They're about to do another one. Uh, one of these uh, inter- interval publications where they give suggestions for the management of of these diseases. Are we under some duress to know these, be familiar with these? What What is it for the doctors? Well, you know, <laughs> I recommend that the doctors know everything so that they're not <laughs> going to be injured, right? But that's, that's not possible. Right. Um, what I like to do is to map out what will the opponent try to, to, to exploit. Uh, things from the New England Journal of Medicine, the Center for Disease Control, from other prominent locations, uh, prom, you know, uh, up to date, uh, other, other sources of literature. Plaintiff's attorneys are notorious for frisbeeing those things in front of the doctor and saying, you didn't know about this? I mean, this is part of you know, the, the, the mainstream thinking of what you do and you weren't aware of it. I think in these uncharted waters and, and Rick, when you reached out to me a month or six weeks ago, it wasn't like this. And so I don't even think we (laughs) talked about, Hey, we're going to be talking about COVID-19 stuff. It has changed so quickly. It's, we are in uncharted waters. Um, but I would recommend to, to the doctors listening to this Yes, I think you should be aware of what the CDC is saying, uh, not not knowing it scripturally, but but having a general awareness of what they're advocating, um, what other prominent authors and and thinkers are are talking about, because you might be confronted with it down the road. You know, this idea of uh, the who gets the ventilator, uh, the the you know just triaging and prioritizing treatment. You know, there's also kind of a, an awareness, and and I and I pray that by the time people are listening to this, maybe in a month in in May, um, that that some of it is maybe solved or blown over a little bit. But another issue that's come up is where COVID nineteen patients are getting priority over other people who have worse conditions or are suffering or are basically kind of being shoved to the side because it's not the the sexy. 
you know, issue of the moment. And that's another judgment call. So if you're in the emergency room and there's somebody w- with possible COVID-19, and then there's also somebody with chest pain, and then there's also somebody with significant abdominal pain, it's going to be the same template of, did you reasonably prioritize who got the resources in that emergency room? It's not just going to be the, 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 you know, the, the media and the TV screaming that it should be COVID-19. Well, we've got that happening here in Michigan with uh, some docs. Of course, their elective, quote-unquote, elective surgeries got canceled so that the hospital is prepared to deal with the COVID situation. Now, a lot of hospitals are not that crowded. They're doing quite nicely, thank you. And they've got doctors who've got full operating schedules. And we've got one guy who's, who's already kicking up a fuss because his patient with a gallbladder you know, they, they put off the gallbladder surgery and then he got an Im- impacted stones and an empyema and all these other sorts of things and said, hey, you know, my patient, uh, not only does he have a good chance of living with this, but uh, he needs to be put in the line somewhere too to get taken care of. And that's already kicked up. I mean, I can't believe how quickly a lot of these issues are coming up. Uh, and that's a fact scenario that is going to be really a devil's triangle for the doctor in a couple of years, because this is eventually going to kind of blow over. And you've got a two-year statute of limitations. They bring this lawsuit in 18 months. <laughs> COVID-19 is in the rearview mirror, just like swine flu or Zika virus. And they're going to say, why did you not take care of this guy with the gallbladder issue? And yep. it's going to be hard to remember what we were in right now, which is all hands on deck. There's no other diseases or problems but COVID-19. So you've hit on something. The plaintiff's attorneys will very cunningly take advantage of that situation. I think doctors need to be very careful how they prioritize uh, their treatments. And I always think it's a mistake for a doc in a malpractice case not to know what other uh, disease entities were in the department at that time, because you have to make a decision sometimes which room you're going into. And there's none of us, you know, I was in that situation one time where I had a bus of, uh, that slid off the road in a, on an icy road in Michigan, which, you know, even in May, we get a few of those. And, uh, that bus had 21 kids on it. Now somebody is going to be the 21st patient seen. Uh, you do the best you can, but and and it would be great to have the retrospectoscope to decide which one is bad and which one isn't. Uh, and I think that uh, that the COVID case is going to be the exact same thing. You you only have so many resources. Well, let's move into this uh, article that was sent to us by Mark Tufan uh, entitled Potential Legal Liability for Withdrawing or Withholding Ventilators During COVID-19, Assessing the Risk and Identifying Needed Reforms. And he basically, uh, obviously you can see the uh, issue here, a patient is going to have the ventilator withdrawn to give it to another patient. And in the process of having that ventilator withdrawn, which is which the patient is not, a, is not agreeing to, you're taking it from this patient, he's not agreeing to give it up, 
you're taking it anyway and you're going to give it to somebody else. That And that patient whose ventilator has been removed dies. Uh, is that uh, Where does that come into the world of civil liability and criminal liability? Uh, so this article, which is in the viewpoint section of JAMA, April 1st, 2020, uh, gets into the potential there. Now, obviously, this is about potential because you know, there is this aura now that we're in this uh, crisis and pretty much anything goes. And as long as you're using reasonable judgment and not gro being grossly negligent. But that's th this is a little different. This says, well, we don't have enough. So we're going to prioritize these ventilators and we're going to develop a triage protocol for these ventilators. And um, we're going to take one maybe from you and give it to another person. And if you die, apparently criminal law says everybody's life is e equal. Um, so that you took it away from me because I had a comorbidity or two or three and I was likely to die. And you gave it to this uh 50-year-old because they were not likely to die if they got this ventilator. And so you made the choice between this life versus that life. And they say that technically that would um, uh, indicate uh, some kind of criminal charges that you could be held against. In fact, they specifically outline that would be murder. Well, doctor, we have been doing that forever. We can we can go back and read the papers back back to the Peloponnesian Wars and doctors had to make decisions about who was going to get treated and who wasn't. This is this is not unusual. And for emergency docs, we've had to do this for years. Somebody is going to get priority over somebody else. But never the, on, on this, never on this magnitude uh, at all. And now you're having protocols coming out that you hear about, maybe not in where you are. Or, maybe even not in this country, where people over the age of X don't get a ventilator. Yeah, they call that England. Uh, so it's going, to be <clears throat> interest, it's going to be interested to see whether their uh, prime minister, who I think is 55 or 56. He doesn't qualify in, for a ventilator. Yeah, yeah, he's in the intensive care unit today, uh, uh, but he's just got nasal oxygen. He does not have a ventilator. But would he get bumped up <laughs> above somebody else like the queen? Uh, would he get a <laughs> ventilator instead of the queen? I have no idea. Mark, any thoughts? Yeah, a lot of thoughts. It's a it's a Sophie's choice. I mean, right. it's a, it's a it's a tough situation from the healthcare provider's vantage point. From the for the doctors that are listening, uh, I hope you're not in that situation. But as Greg points out, whether it's medicine or time or resources, you're constantly having to make uh, crack judgment calls as to how to best use those. The key is going to be uh, justifying it justifying your decision. Uh, sometimes there should have been an effort to transfer maybe the more serious patient and the wheels in motion should have been uh, uh, engaged early. Uh, get staff to help you with that. Um, get other people to help you call in the reserves. But as far as something like equipment, you want to be able to justify your decision. If you're moving it from a 90-year-old to a 30-year-old, you know, justify that, not just they're old, but also 
you know, what are the likelihoods of success with the ventilator with the 90-year-old versus the 30-year-old? Um, a period of time, maybe it's for a limited period of time, maybe it's two hours. Uh, can the th I've heard that ventilators can be shared. Uh, you know, why isn't that, uh, so, you know, worth considering here? This justification should be placed in the records. Now, uh, by the way, the sharing of ventilators is more theoretical. We don't do it a lot. And the problem with that is to keep the cross-contamination con of other infections is not simple. Uh, they're doing a fair amount of studies on this right now, but there is nothing without its risk. And so the cross-contamination con infection is, is for real, and, and we need to kind of keep that in mind. Uh, would you tell us, Mark, you started uh, before we started to record, telling us about a case that's already come into you. Uh, a, a COVID case already? Unbelievable. Yeah. Law never does anything stat. <laughs> well, Tell us this. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating situation. It, literally yesterday, um, I received uh, a, a call from a doctor, and he sent me the, the letter from the medical board. Um, and the complaint is... Uh, this is quoting from the letter. It is alleged that you failed to appropriately evaluate, diagnose, treat, and follow up care of the patient failing to test for COVID-19 and placing other persons at risk. It is alleged that you refused follow up care, placing another physician and staff at risk when the patient tested positive for COVID-19. I haven't seen any records, really haven't had a chance to spend much time even talking with this good doctor. But it turns out from the little I know that uh, he had seen a patient. This was probably a month ago. Um, and the patient, I guess, had gone to another doctor, turned out to be uh, COVID-19 positive, and got the doctor infected. And the doctor has the, is the one that is filing the complaint, if you can believe it. So um, we're in uncharted waters. Uh, yeah. he, he was talking about, Hey, a month ago, it was being viewed differently than it is today. And so it's, it's been a, a dynamic, fluid changing situation. Um, I feel, uh, you know, I don't know how, how bad this was on the doctor, but what a rash move to turn in a colleague to the, to the medical board, unless it's just grossly out of line, but it doesn't sound grossly out of line to me. It just sounds like something that happened just like she had gotten the regular flu from a patient. And my goodness, to turn him into the medical board. Ken, you know, I've testified in cases which are 11 years old. <laughs> I mean, that have gone on <laughs> forever. And now we're pushing within the first month a COVID violation. Uh, to me, that seems to, be, that seems to be out of all sense of reason here. Nobody's had a chance to look at this thing correctly. The other thing is we're going to have to record exactly what date and time all these things take place because it's changing day by day. I was noticing this morning as I'm getting up on wh whatever it is, the Today Show or whatever it is, um, Dr. Fauci is on with new recommendations 
about uh, who should have their mask on and who shouldn't. Should it be made out of old underwear? Should it be made out of this or that? I mean, this is getting crazy out there. And how are we going to remember? Because when this ever comes to an actual case, it will be five years from now. uh, How are we going to remember what we were actually doing at that period in time? I mean, it's it's moving that fast. It is moving that fast because I think two weeks ago it was, no, we don't think you should wear masks. Right. And then it moved into wearing masks. <laughs> and maybe by the time people are listening to this, it'll be, hey, it's been shown don't wear masks. I mean, yes. uh, you're right. And, and, and that means the standard of care is kind of evolving because if the question is what do reasonable doctors do and what is being recommended is changing every other day, um, that's tough. And so, again, I would I would emphasize, uh, you know, be aware generally of what the cutting edge recommendations are. And if that's a if that's a pop up or an up to date or some kind of alert, I think that's the best thing the doctor can do. Justify it in the records and being able to explain it later if they are uh, critical of it or saying that it's wrong. In the last four days, I've heard one of my neighbors think uh, that they may have gotten COVID because their doctor left their office open a few more days um, uh, before, by the way, the the governor had actually uh, done the shutdown order. She was in the waiting room, got COVID, and basically says that doctor should be sued for not closing the office when he knew, and I think the phrase in your business is knew or should have known <laughs> that a, is it, is it that the phrase? That's for you the guys? phrase. Yes. That's the phrase. Now on yes. a lot of this, you know, my argument would be, well, how do you prove you got it from that person or that location? Exactly. Just like this new board matter is how does she know that that it came from that person? You can get it from somebody who doesn't have any symptoms. So we have some causation arguments here. And I've, I've talked to a lot of really good uh, ER docs. One in particular, he may recognize this when he hears me. He's also a lawyer. You got some big causation here. How did that happen? And would it have made a difference? I mean, Rick, you brought up the ventilator argument. If you're going to not give the ventilator to the aged person, um, and they don't make it. I've heard some statistics. They've said a, a tremendous number of the people that were passed away, I think it was in Italy, that the best estimate is that they were going to die by the end of the year anyway. So there is kind of an argument of, did this really, was this really a premature death? <laughs> or was this something that was going to happen in two weeks from a different type of virus, maybe even the regular flu? So there's well, there's causation arguments uh, all over. Although this you article know, it, uh, says that uh, if you withdraw a uh, ventilator and shorten a person's life by certain even hours, that that basically contributed to their death and therefore the it was criminally um, a problem. You know, one of the things they say here that's kind of interesting is that if you adhere to well-recognized triage guidelines, for example, that will likely constitute strong evidence that the standard of care uh, was met. So that brings up your point, uh, Mark, that you probably ought to know uh, what is the standard of care, even though it is evolving. With But with regard to this issue of ventilators, the, the idea that... Mm, 
you don't qualify for a ventilator, that's going to be really a tough call if we get to that uh, point. I don't know that we're there yet. Uh, I may be very, very wrong, and New York very uh, could be uh, in that situation. But the idea of you don't qualify or we're taking your uh, ventilator away and we're going to give it to somebody else is uh, you can envision that that does not that has not happened in the past. No, no, it hasn't. And, and there's a, a bunch of things that pop into my mind for the healthcare provider in the trenches. Be careful. You're probably being recorded. And so when you're wrestling with this out loud and the family member is, is videoing you with their cell phone, be careful what you're saying. You need to have plausible, justifiable reasons for taking the steps that you do. Criminal and, you know, uh, liability to me, that's a big leap. And I think the article said that it's yes. a big leap mm -hmm. unless, yeah. you know, there's provable criminal intent. And that's yeah. just we're not going to get there, I hope. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait. You know, as you start to throw that around, I get sweaty. Uh, <laughs> criminal intent has nothing to do with being uh, stupid. It has to do with intent. Yeah. Uh, and and that's. Yeah, you want to hurt somebody. And yeah, if that's crimes. the case, you know, it's going to extend beyond ventilators. I mean, yeah. there's going to be other situations. I think that's that why that we call it play. the criminal law. <laughs> be, yeah. Well, be, you know, they did uh, say that some of this would qualify as manslaughter. You know, it's not like, you, you know, but in any case, uh, this is in the, the this is in the, in the news and this is by two Harvard law professors and a doctor from the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, it's kind of just suggesting that we establish some kind of protocols that physicians can follow and therefore they can say, well, I followed the CDC or I followed the, the hospital, somebody's protocol. I just didn't make it up on the spot, that kind of thing. Yeah. Mark, let's go yeah. move on to your, uh, your situations here that you... Uh, we're going to discuss prior to us bringing in all of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, they kind of pale in comparison to some of the some of the uh, flamboyant nature of some of these things. But you know, uh, doctors again, I, I think y'all are the best profession, and uh, it, it's 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 an honor to get to work with you guys and. Um, for the men and women are the, that are out there and they're, you know, they're seeing the, the sick child at 2 a.m. or the, you know, the, the guy who's been in 14 times in the last 14 days at, at 2 p.m., uh, it's, it's just a meat grinder and a buffet of potential issues. We do see some repetitive stuff. And I was thinking about, you know, as far as giving some principles that you can hang your hat on. It's just being steadily good, just repetitively steadily good. Uh, if you think about in football, you know, I, I think that three of the pillars of a good football team, uh, you know, kind of Vince Lombardi type stuff is good blocking, good tackling and minimize the turnovers. And how does that translate to the ER doctor? I would say good judgment, good bedside manner, and good records. That is the three-headed monster that is going to allow you to, to navigate and slalom through this minefield of, of challenging patients, particularly when you're throwing in these uh, uh, new viruses and, and uncharted waters. Um, anyway, 
moving into kind of a, a, a case study. And, and what I did is I went back in our files and went back several years. Some of these are board matters. Some of them are lawsuits. I think, you know, the issues overlap and are, are very similar. But um, the first one relates to a patient who comes in and the allegation relates to uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. I've handled several of those cases. They can be very serious. This wasn't one of the more serious ones, but this was pretty typical to what the emergency room doctor sees on a given uh, shift. So the allegation relates to a, a, a woman around 60 um, and that there was a failure to adequately assess and treat the patient with diabetic ketoacidosis, discharging her from the emergency room without any uh, real education on on diabetes or what she was experiencing. Um, and, you know, from the doctor's point of view, just kind of set the table here a little bit. Uh, this this patient came in, no history of diabetes, uh, had about a, a two weeks worth of symptoms, which included intermittent blurry vision, increased thirst, frequent urination, nausea, and dysuria. Um she uh, had checked her own uh, glucose uh, in the 200s, um, came in with family. And uh, so uh, he went ahead and ordered lab work. Uh, the blood sugar was at 327. Uh, she had, uh, uh, you know, elevated uh, ketones. Um, uh, let's see, the anion gap was... Uh, 17, I guess it should be around 15. Um, she did have normal CO2 and normal bicarbonate levels. Uh, she was given a bolus of fluids to stabilize the blood sugars. Uh, her heart rate improved. The blood sugar dropped to 254 on the next test. Um, no blurry vision, no confusion, um, no abdominal pain or nausea normal kidney function, um, urinalysis showed some ketones as well as urinary tract infection, which uh, possibly explains the DKA-like DKA symptoms that she had been ex experiencing. Prior to the discharge, she was given a prescription for metformin and uh, told to follow up with her primary care doctor. She was also given some literature. Now, this is where we have some some key takeaways. And I guess first, I would like to hear from you guys because you guys are so experienced in this and you see patients like this all the time. What are your kind of your thoughts about how this uh, patient seemed to be handled? Well, offhand, it doesn't sound like she is uh, that particularly sick. Um, her numbers don't... Uh, tell us that she's particularly sick. Although I must admit, I've been hearing about these cases where the blood sugars are not in the traditional values that you see with the DKA. So uh, I don't know that our doctor's done anything uh, badly as yet. Are you kidding? Those numbers are actually very good. To, well, that it, would be an average diabetic patient for me coming in who wasn't even complaining about their diabetes. I mean, uh, uh, blood sugars <clears throat> in the 250. Uh, and not only do I see these patients, but I take three shots of insulin a day. Uh, this would be good. Yeah, these are uh, better it, than your numbers. 
Yeah, much better than my numbers. <laughs> right now. By, by the way, getting back to the sharing ventilator things, when I was on a CPAP or something about uh, eight or nine months ago, Rick came into my hospital room and told him, uh, Hey, if you need that for somebody who's, you know, really important <laughs> or who's going to who's going to contribute to the society, it's okay. You can take that off of him. I didn't have really the authority to do that. I acknowledge that. Yeah, yes. Well, listen. Just a suggestion from a friend. Huh? Exactly, yeah. you know, just trying to be helpful. Yeah, nobody's got any authority anymore. I mean, it's I I'm sitting here watching this between the states thinking, you know, <laughs> there, there are some problems with the system, and uh, who knows what this is. Well, Mark, how did this Mr. case uh, evolve? Well, it, it evolved into a board complaint, and we we got it dismissed, and I wanted to give a couple of nuggets to the doctors listening. Um, first of all, in the response, we included some literature. And I think that whether you're in the courtroom or whether you're in front of the medical board or if you're in a peer review, um, one of the real objective pillars in your defense can be some supportive literature. So we went to a good text. We talked about uh, the, the signs and symptoms of DKA. And mainly, uh, and I'll, I'll read it to you, it says the symptoms and physical signs of DKA. This is from Harrison's. Uh, usually develop over 24 hours. DK may be the initial system complex that leads to a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, but more frequently it occurs in individuals with established diabetes, which she didn't have. Um, so we were able to show, look, you know, this is usually an acute complication, um, but she reported these symptoms at, as, as being existing for uh, two weeks and that she didn't have a previous history of that. Moreover, she denied a lot of the uh, seminal uh, uh, additional symptoms that are associated with DKA. So I just want to remind the listeners that when you are in the crosshairs, it's good to have some, some literature that, that backs up what you did. And then another takeaway from this case study is one of her complaints was he didn't educate her. He didn't give her any information. He just kind of uh, shoved her out the door. That wasn't true. Uh, doctors are now giving handouts pretty, pretty regularly, sometimes with drawings. I know, uh, maybe it's the mid-level or other staff that does that. I would encourage that to be done. I think it's important. And this doctor did something that was important. And that is he noted in his record that these educational materials had been given to the patient. So when she claimed that she hadn't been given anything, the record directly contradicted that. And he printed those out for me, and they were great. Uh, talked about diabetes, talked about what it was, what they needed to do, had all these recommendations. We highlighted that, provided it to the board. And between that and quoting literature and then a good narrative from the doctor and pretty decent records, the matter got dismissed. And did, this was certainly... This Go was ahead. this was um, the, the complaint of the patient to the medical board. Yes, uh, it, it was. seems like that was a very low threshold for. Although I know that the medical board basically uh, follow ups virtually everything that is sent to them. They have a, a this passion for you know digging up any kind of trouble uh, as they defend themselves against the uh, citizens of the state. Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, 
I, I have kind of a mixed feelings about the medical boards. I, I know that they are absolutely necessary. And let's face it, we have some doctors out there that aren't doing a very good job. And they're, I mean, it, like in any profession, whether it's police or, or lawyers or doctors, there's, there's good, bad, and there's, there's the ones that are in between. And I understand and respect that the boards need to be involved. And by and large, the Texas Medical Board does a decent job. They do a pretty good job. But where most of the boards aren't very good at is screening these things at the beginning. I don't know about how some of the other states are, but I think in general across the nation, most states have a medical board that anybody can complain to, and that will trigger some kind of, we're going to look into it. And then it just kind of lumbers along. And so what I recommend to the doctors, because frankly, for emergency medicine doctors in a lot of states, particularly Texas, but but certainly in, a, in other states that have some tort reform, uh, the medical board has become the way to get at the doctor versus the lawsuit. And a right. lot of lawyers will push them that way. They'll say, and I've even got one here later that we can talk about, where the guy even says in his complaint, the lawyers tell me it's hard to sue a doctor uh, an emergency medicine doctor in Texas, so I needed to come to the medical board. And so the the lawyers will often di direct them that way because they're not going to bring the lawsuit. But here's the other insider, you know, inside baseball scoop. Um, on the more serious case, a plaintiff's attorney or, or a, a patient will go to a lawyer, a plaintiff's lawyer, and the plaintiff's lawyer will say, well, I will probably take the case, but I want you to go to the medical board first and I want, I want there to be some type of agreed order that the doctor ends up signing where there's language in there that he kind of admits that he mishandled this. And then we'll try to use that in the lawsuit that we're going to file. So it's a one-two punch. And I think I've mentioned this before, but it's something I would really like the doctors to appreciate is just because there's not a lawsuit yet, you usually have a, a decent statute of limitations. The complaints with the medical board are often filed pretty quickly after the care. Be careful how you allow that to, to be resolved because it might be used as a bit of a stick against you if they bring a lawsuit. But yeah, back on this case, this was probably, as I recollect on it, the, this uh, what what often happens, and I don't mean to I don't mean to come across as a broken record or in any way condescending, but uh, the bedside manner issue is the thing that is going to get doctors in trouble almost more than anything. Um, I, I would rather you have a good bedside manner with patients than have good records. That's and good records are everything. And why is that? Because if they walk out of there and they feel like you didn't care about them or they were disrespected or there was arrogance or condescension and anything goes wrong at all, they're in a fender bender on the way home from the emergency room. It's very easy for them to jump on the computer and file a complaint. So there is just no downside at all. It costs you nothing to have kind of an agreeable personality to be good humored, to be kind, to be interested, even if you're faking those things. That's oh yeah, it's part of the business. The you we, have to I put on the mask. If you are usually kind of a moody guy who's very quiet, be somewhat gregarious and nice and and uh, approachable with these people. You know, because Mark, you just don't want them coming after you. That's the for best, sure. Uh, you yeah, know, the we best did clinical. Go ahead. We, we did a a, a paper. Not too long ago, 
where they looked at uh, physician satisfaction scores in the emergency department and the same physician satisfaction scores in the urgent care department. And in the urgent care department, the scores were much higher than they were in the emergency department. It's kind of like it's a tougher place to uh, do all, all of those things. And your wiring, it's just part of the job. You're not, we don't, you leave your moodiness at the door. We don't really care what's happening between you and your wife uh, kind of thing. You, when you get in there, this is Mickey Mouse show business thing. This, everybody's got to be up. You've got to, it's part of the, the uh, part of the show. And it's the part that the patients can recognize. They can recognize caring. They don't know anything about the quality of care, but they do know something about the quality of the caring. And so uh, uh, it, it is so it's so important, especially with these medical board things, because you know before you talk to a lawyer, you can just make a complaint. And they are so um, aggressive on these uh, filed complaints that, and the other thing is, Mark, and I think you've said it in the past, that you better lawyer up for any of these complaints to the uh, medical board and, oh, and not try to be a do-it-yourselfer here. Oh, yeah. absolutely. It's like me stitching up my hand after I've cut it. I mean, I might be able to do it, but I'm probably going to lose my arm. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, and, and if, if you do it and lose your arm, you got nobody to sue, Mark. So, I mean, it's, it's a real problem. You know, the best, the best clinician I ever met uh, told me something which is absolutely true. And he just said, uh, they'll never remember what you told them but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And yeah. I think yeah. that's probably right. Yeah. You know, they, they walk in and say, God, he was a good doctor, it, which doesn't have anything to do with your science knowledge. It has to do with whether you were nice. And uh, it does make a difference. It, it totally does. And, and, you know, it's a little bit of a drumbeat with me because I see – I see some of these things being um, self-inflicted and the professional just doesn't need these hobbies of having to defend cases or board matters because they didn't, you know, make an effort to click with the patient. Um, I, you know, for the doctors listening, you know, people come to you in their most dire situations and yes, they're overweight or yes, they smoke or yes, they have an unusual family situation or they may be wearing something unusual or they're from a different land or they don't speak very clearly. I mean, there's, it's, it, it is Fort Apache, the Bronx. I get it, but they're vulnerable. And so if you're a 38 year old triathlete and you're treating somebody who's 475 pounds, they can kind of tell by the smirk on your face when you walk in the room, be careful. Be careful of that because that can light the fuse. And so if it doesn't go well, which you may not be able to control at all, they're going to remember that you were the smirking triathlete who didn't catch this tumor or whatever it was. Exactly. <laughs> you know what? And they're going to take it out on you. All right. We need to have some comic relief today. <laughs> I, I, got, I got sent uh, a letter from a person who puts on teaching seminars uh, for uh, uh, doctors and their offices. And this one is entitled Emotional Support Animal Policy Requirements. <laughs> Protect your practice today. Now, 
as you might imagine, I, I, emergency docs have a certain view of this. I mean, I, I understand. I'm a dog guy. I like C&I dogs, but I don't understand an emotional support python. If someone's, if someone's in my place with a python that's looking at me like lunch, I mean, it is hard, you know. <laughs> If you're going to be in front of me with a python, it better be in a in a club and you better be dancing. And and this is just crazy crap. In any event, they they point out that uh, you don't want to have lawsuits and they talk about lawsuits here which have been brought against physicians offices for the way their staffs have treated their emotional support <laughs> animals. Uh, wow. They did have, and they list these various things like you have that you have to cut through the confusion. And the best thing you can do, doctor, is quif- quickly differentiate between a service animal and an emotional support animal. Because most places have now taken the attitude if it's truly a service animal, again, seeing eye dog, no problem. The airlines had to go through this. Delta Airlines had to had somebody with an emotional support turkey <laughs> <laughs> that got on the plane, and other people are pissed about it. So I, I guess the one thing I would recommend is have a policy for your emergency department or urgent care center and define quickly if it's not one of the genuine service animals. Uh, the rest of the people... And, and and they list some great cases where the emotional support mongoose had pissed on, on another patient in the waiting room and things like that. Uh, so and of course the patient, that other patient, then claims they've been emotionally scarred for the rest of their life. I don't know. Uh, I, I I don't know whether you've ever seen one of these cases, but I thought it was interesting that someone is putting on classes and programs to to stuff for emergency docs to uh, not allow or to at least have a policy to handle emotional support animals. <laughs> that is uh, that is hilarious. I just. <laughs> I, I, my sympathies go out to emergency medicine doctors because you are um, you're you're confronted with such a an array of challenges and you know I can see a you know even a German Shepherd a seeing eye dog you know and 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 the dog biting someone in your you know in in the emergency room and then you've got a lawsuit over that or. Um, maybe two seeing eye dogs and they get in a fight. And, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's endless. It's endless. Yeah. You could just, you, you could come up with all kinds of comic stuff, like one seeing eye dog saying to the other one, Hey, I'm walking here, you know, and, uh, this could be good stuff. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, the so, Turkey one, that's the, the, the comfort Turkey is uh, and that's a new one for me. That's a God. <laughs> All right, Mark, what do you got there? Okay, a couple of other case studies. Um, some of them are more serious than others. This one's a little bit more involved, uh, and it was a lawsuit about 10 years ago. Um, it, uh, older fella in his 80s, um, you know, had a medical history of 
hypertension, coronary artery disease, myocardial infarction and stroke, um, deep vein thrombosis with pulmonary embolus, long list of medications. He went in for a cardiac catheterization. Three days later, he had a sinkable episode and was taken by ambulance to a hospital. Um, he arrived with, you know, super low blood pressure, 71 over 51, um, pain in the groin at the catheter insertion site, noted to have uh, a lot of bruising there. Um, there was a uh, laboratory evaluation done, complete blood count showed 22.9 white blood cells. Uh, let's see here. Um, uh, let's see. I want to just hit some of the high points here. I can't, it's a very, very involved case as I remember, but, uh, I just want to make sure we, we get it. The doctor did order an ultrasound, uh, of that, uh, of that groin in the, in the, in the right leg. And there was a large hematoma there. Um, the, the doctor did give a quite a bit of, uh, fluid, uh, seven liters, uh, over the day. Um, and the guy just wasn't doing very well. And the doctor contacted a cardiologist at another hospital, probably 40 minutes away and asked him to accept transfer for a higher level of care, which the guy, uh, did accept, uh, transfer. Um, the patient was transferred and lived there about four or five hours and died. And there was a big lawsuit over it. Uh, the plaintiffs actually got a very, very stout expert, um, uh, against, against the whole case, but to, in particular against our, our, our emergency medicine doctor. And, um, I'm just going to read a little bit of his opinions and then I'd like to hear what you guys think and I'll, I'll let you know how it ended and how, what some of the takeaways are. Uh, he, he says, uh, after considering the evidence in the medical record and the autopsy report that showed approximately one third of the patient's entire blood volume was in his right thigh. Uh, in my opinion, there is proof beyond a reasonable doubt that he bled to death from a delayed complication of his percutaneous coronary intervention. Specifically, in my opinion, the manner of death was accidental and the cause of death was post-operative shock caused by acute post-hemorrhagic anemia caused by accidental hemorrhage after heart catheterization. Um, complicating this condition were the adverse effects from prescriptive use of aspirin and ticlodipine. 18 and one half hours elapsed between the time the patient first arrived for care and the time of his death. During this interval, he was bleeding to death from the puncture in his femoral artery. The doctors and hospitals treating him missed several opportunities to provide intervention and that, that would have reasonably uh, saved his life. Um, in particular, for our doctor, there's allegations of failing to review and follow up on the ultrasound, failing to consider the diagnosis of hemorrhage, uh, failing to consider and treat hemorrhagic shock, failing, failure to timely uh, and appropriately consult a specialist, and the delay in, in allowing the transfer to, uh, to happen. Um, 
What do you guys think, just as uh, as as very experienced doctors? What what are some of your initial thoughts? Right. Well, my my first thought is seven liters of fluid. Did that include blood? I mean, was was blood given? Seven liters uh, is is a fair amount of. I can swim in seven liters. Uh, th- that's. That's a, a fair yeah. amount. And if you thought that was all blood in that groin area and you had low vital signs, uh, fluid, water, salt water doesn't carry much oxygen. And it yeah. sounds to me like he should have been not only compressed, but transfused. Yeah, it says uh, it says uh, seven liters of 0.9 percent saline solution which is 74 milliliters per kilogram. Despite critical condition in this large volume of crystalloids, there is no evidence of repeat assessment of vital signs for the next three hours when the blood pressure was noted to be 70 over 37. Uh, So I don't remember it well enough. I don't think he did give blood. Um, You know, again, I recall this being a good doc. Um, It just, uh, things just moved too slow. And, you know, that's another hallmark thing. And you guys hear it and see it all the time. I especially do because I know things take time, but it looks terrible in retrospect when you're talking about somebody sitting there for hours, particularly with probably a solvable problem if you can just get them to somebody who can solve it. And I don't think juries and lay people respond real well to, well, that's just the system. I, I, I got the transfer approved. The, the ambulance just didn't get here. You know, that type of thing. Yeah. There needs to be a note in the record that you've called again. You know, uh, transfer approved. I've asked for an immediate ambulance or, you know, for the paperwork to happen immediately. Stat. Use words that show that you've done what you can do to transfer the baton of care. Because in retrospect, when a person is sitting there for a long time and they have an autopsy saying, hey, all of his blood's located in his right thigh, <laughs> right? it looks bad. And yeah. it's not a way anybody wants to go. Well, what you know, I, Einstein was right. Uh, everything's relative. But and time, particularly the best, one of the best closing arguments I ever heard was by a plaintiff who told the jury on a case where time was the essence, he says, let's sit here, all of us. Mm. Let's see what 10 minutes or 50 really is. And you know, when you're sitting there doing nothing else but that, you know, it's, it's artificial, but it wasn't lost on the jury. Yeah. And, yeah. and I uh, said, so, good, let's sit there. Let me start my stopwatch here. And uh, I thought I thought it was a brilliant closing argument. Yeah, that is a nice move. I mean, everybody knows that the doctors are busy, but you got to be careful to play the busy card because a good plaintiff's attorney will get those other records from the patients you were seeing. And it turns out that maybe it wasn't as many as you thought. Right. <laughs> and they'll redact him. And all of a sudden it's like, what were you doing? Yeah. You know, and uh, and then a nurse testifies you you went to McDonald's for lunch and this guy's bleeding to death on your watch. That's how it will be portrayed fairly or unfairly. Too Rick, little, too late. That's right. right. 
on the face of it, it sounds like he bled to death and that uh, the patient wasn't provided adequate treatment. Uh, I guess there are two ways to look at the treatment. Can you stop the bleeding that has occurred or has it already stopped? And <clears throat> have you given, given a transfusion? I mean, Greg's right. Eight liters of saline is this enormous amount, of, especially in an older person. And uh, the idea is basically that's a temporizing measure until you get can get blood quickly. Uh, and if somebody's coming in with a 70 over 30 blood pressure, you know, even type-specific blood would be um, of little risk in giving it to this person for sure. And so if this was a relative of mine, I have to take the point of view right now that I would have filed suit as well because uh, this seemed to be an obvious case of hemorrhagic shock. And everybody knows you got to give blood in hemorrhagic shock. Now, there must be some twist and turn here that that, that I'm not avail, uh, 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 availed of yet. So well, why don't you tell me the outcome? Because you basically are defending this guy. Well, and, and, and you know what? He was a good doctor. And, and as I recall, and again, this was a good 10 years ago, um, you know, there was there were some issues with the receiving hospital. They had their own issues. Uh, there were some delays in him getting seen there after, you know, accepting the transfer and knowing that he wasn't doing that, you know, doing that great. Um, the case ended up uh, settling um, and, and the settlement was not huge. Uh, we fought hard for it. But what struck me, and I think one of the things that I would emphasize to the listeners is it's one thing to get a hired gun. It's another when the expert appears to be pretty reputable. Uh, this expert against us was somebody I had used before. Yeah, who that's had an always tough. <laughs> who had an academic <laughs> position. And, um, I, you know, my heart kind of fell when I saw his report come in. Uh, so the takeaways from this one, um, first of all, if time is of the essence, time is of the essence and you want your notes to reflect that, you know, if you realize early on, this is, this is a man that's going to need a higher level of care. Don't delay pursuing getting him there and pull out the stops and make sure your records show that, uh, on this, there was no memo of transfer or transfer order that kind of showed a little bit of a, a sloppiness that would have helped to have had, uh, and then better documentation of talking to the accepting doctor. I mean, we've talked a lot about, you know, you guys are on the front lines, you're talking to consultants or maybe a doctor who, who you're going to, um, transfer this care to, you need to have a pretty good note about that conversation. And I'm not saying slant it. I'm not saying set them up. But if you've told them about an elevated white blood cell count or if you've told them about, you know, uh, you know, other important lab values or radiological findings or whatever it may be, note that that you told them that. Because let me tell you, when when the stuff hits the fan and all of you guys are in a lawsuit, he's not going to remember that you told him that. <laughs> uh, so you want it in the record that you told him that. And, and, and that's a takeaway from from this uh, from this case. The final thing I have, and it's real quick, is uh, another boundary issue case. I feel like every every time I come on, I need to give a, a little bit of a voice crying from the wilderness on that. We're still seeing a lot of boundary violation cases. Um, I think it's a toss-up as to you know what the statistics are on on whether they're true or not. 
a good chunk of them are true. A good chunk of them aren't either. There's a lie or they're they're They misunderstood, but unfortunately I know some of them are true. And so we have to be really, really careful in that area. The complaint I'm referring to here is against an emergency medicine doctor a lady came in and this is the complaint. Um, inappropriately fondled the patient's breasts and placed hands under the patient's pants and fondled the patient's genital area. Um, uh, and that this, uh, that there was no chaperone. Um, basically this patient came in as a young female in her twenties, came in with sore throat, fatigue, nausea, and an abdominal rash. Uh, and it's the rash, uh, the examination of the rash, I think that, that, um, got the doctor in trouble, had the patient lay down, raised her shirt, examined all aspects of the, of the torso area. Later, uh, listened to the, um, you know, stethoscope on the chest and back, had to go under the shirt on the chest to do that. Um, the patient didn't voice any complaints, but they, the husband called <laughs> about 30 minutes after the patient left. And the patient had said that this uh, emergency medicine doctor had uh, inappropriately touched her. Um, he actually spoke to the doctor's supervisor, and the doctor's supervisor did an email. What was ended up being helpful, is, at least partially helpful, is the email of the conversation with the husband. There was no mention of uh, any um, touching of the genitals. And then yet in the complaint, it had evolved to that. So we were able to show a couple of things because we actually got this one dismissed. Um, first of all, there was uh, uh, some helpful things in the records. The guy did a decent job in noting in the records. We also just got a picture from a textbook on where you have to exam examine in the abdomen, upper right, upper left, lower right, lower left. That sneaks down into the pubic area. It also sneaks up pretty close to the breasts. And he was able to, you know, say that he had to evaluate that area based on the rash that she had. Um, also, this patient, as I recall, had some interesting things on Facebook which uh, we went ahead and submitted to the board. And I can't remember exactly what they were, but I think they were kind of some deceptive things. Uh, and I want to, for the takeaways, and I know we're getting close on time, but um, first of all, in this day and age, I strongly encourage all doctors who have to examine in anywhere near any sensitive areas to have a chaperone step in for that exam. And frankly, that has moved not just with opposite sex, but same sex. So yes. if you're an emergency medicine doctor <clears throat> and you have to examine, uh, you know, the, the, the scrotum of a, of a patient and you're a man, you still need to have somebody come in there because, um, just going into that area in this day and age with the changes in the culture and just the way things are, you need to have that protection of having that second person in there. It can be for 30 seconds. Make sure that they have that, that you note that they were present in your record, that you had a chaperone. Um, and then the other thing is, and, and again, I think this was a might have been a bit of a cultural collision with the doctor and the patient. Uh, I'm not sure there was good communication. I think if you're going to go into an area that's sensitive, particularly on a woman and you're a male, 
uh, doctor, if you're going to examine lower abdomen, you need to tell them. Uh, don't just all of a sudden dive down near that area. Let them know, hey, this could be uncomfortable. I've got to go down. And so this rash is extending down into the pubic area. I need to take a look at it. Are you okay with that? Um, now you have a chaperone in there and the chaperone can note that you've made that inquiry, but, uh, the boundary cases are popping up more and more, especially with the me too movement. And again, I think a chunk of them are true, but a chunk of them aren't true. And so you got to defend yourself by having a chaperone and by having good records. Yeah. What do you think about a, a policy, a departmental policy? Because uh, each person should not be kind of well deciding on their own. Well, maybe I ought to have a chaperone, maybe I don't, kind of thing. I think that a policy would make it clear that um, this is what the expectations are uh, of you as a, a clinician, that you will have a chaperone, that you will ask a nurse, or it doesn't have to be a nurse, it could be a tech, it could be uh, e anybody else working in the department who is authorized to be in the room when you're doing an exam. So uh, I, I like it. I think that uh, there's a need for, this is the departmental policy we chaperone, and, and it's in the same male on male and female on female. Exactly. Um, yeah, we've, yeah. We've, I've seen... Uh, these types of complaints are now being lodged against the same sex. So you'll have a man lodge a complaint or a bring a lawsuit for being assaulted by a man, a male yep. doctor. And yeah. that, that wasn't the case 10 years ago, but and it you is don't, now. You don't want to go to the medical board with uh, that being the complaint. I'd rather go to the medical board with that. I'm missing a, a glaucoma <laughs> than uh, being accused of getting uh, funny with a, a, a patient because uh, that that's not going to ring well. That, that does look bad on your record. It um, does, and I just spoke to the medical board. It's a different different case. It's for a pain management doctor, actually, and uh, and I don't think he did assault these women. But but they are on a mission to go after him. And their quote to me was, "Well, the police don't they don't uh, manage this stuff right. They don't they they never really get any kind of a you know a conviction or arrest. And so we are." the the bulwark for the for the victims mm -hmm. so there's this real believer you know true believer mentality and doctors be careful because they're headhunting and 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 it's not just with the board i mean there are there are certain lawyers and their niche practice is going after doctors on mm -hmm. sexual assault cases right and be careful because even if you win that the old adage of you may beat the rap but you're not going to beat the ride you don't want that kind of junk in the newspaper you don't want that um in in a public filing that somebody can look up just be very very careful the safest thing get a chaperone in there and put in the records that you had a chaperone everything i've changed in all the years i've been in practice that would be the number one thing. I mean, I still look at eyes the same way. I still do most everything else the same way. But it took me about uh, 10 years to realize everything isn't like it's supposed to be. The psychology of everyone isn't the same. And it's just so, so simple to yes. bring someone in for those sensitive exams it's not worth it to do anything else. Well, and uh, Rick it, and I have friends who have had problems with yes, this. Yes, this, but it is it a hassle. Your life. It is a hassle to find somebody, yes. you know, because you want to bop in just to see how they're doing kind of thing. Yes. Is the belly still tender or not? And yes. and 
it's a hassle to find somebody else to do it because everybody's doing something else. They're running around, but true. it's so easy to not do it. I um, know. I know it is, it, it is. but those it, are exactly the ones where they end up complaining and they just take that extra second. And also your antenna has to be up. If you've established a good rapport with the patient, there's a family member in there, use your judgment. But many times if you're getting into a sensitive area, uh, you, you know, just having somebody in there for 10 seconds is going to rescue you. It really will. Yeah. And you can sense trouble walking in the door. You know, I, I, I well, yes a, and no. I think, I, yeah, yeah. yes and no, because the cases we're concerned about is where you can't sense it. And right. you, and, and right. you, and you did. That's why the policy is good. Rick, you're, you're, I mean, that's going to help the group. That's going to help the management team. That's going to help the hospital have that policy in place. But the individual doctor, your reputation is on the line. Sometimes it's hard to get insurance if you have a pattern of these things. I mean, it can ruin your life. And mm-hmm. and I've had, I've had doctors get served with lawsuits, um, and their wife reads it, or they open the mail, and it's one of these they fondled the breast thing. I mean, it can be a devastating set of facts. Like Absolutely. you say, better to miss a glaucoma <laughs> than have a fondling case. Because it can just ruin your reputation. So I'm just my 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 plea to the doctors is is be be wise, be wise on this, be reasonable, and take that extra moment. The internet has changed everything. Every every lay person knows that they can get into a governmental situation and voice a complaint. They did not know that 15 years ago. They know it now. It takes them two minutes to do it, and so just be you know harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. Okay, guys, we're out of time. Mark, I want to thank you so much for taking the time with us. Um, I think we actually have some more stuff we'd we'd like to get into. We we have plenty of stuff. We're going to invite (laughs) him back for it. I'd love it. Again, I haven't even gotten into my uh, uh, First Amendment questions. (laughs) I would love it. I'm I'm kind of (laughs) glad we haven't gotten into them. We ran out of that time. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. No, there's good stuff there, Rick. You want to whine? Mark, uh, actually... I don't honestly know if we have time for a wine. Why don't you do a wine? And and if this is less than 75 minutes long, we'll put the wine in. And if it isn't, we'll take the wine out. So go right. go for it. I, you know, I the bottle of wine that you talked about yesterday that yeah. you thought was such a great bottle, I looked it up. It was 12 bucks a bottle. You know, you look, You were thinking like, <laughs> like it was a Chateau uh, something or other. It was nothing. Ye of little faith. <laughs> Ace that bottle, damn it. It's great. Here's another one. Not terribly expensive, but great. It's called a Camel, C-A-L-M-E-L-J Joseph. It's a Grand Van du Long Guidoc 2001. Uh, and it's uh, Minerois. Uh, and this is the kind of thing that for 20 or $25, you get a great French wine. Uh, I, I certainly hope we're not ki- uh, killing wine of the month. Uh, in any event, guys, uh, that's all I've got. Well, you know, uh, Mark, Greg has sensed his mortality and has, and has decided to drink all of the good <laughs> wines in his cellar because uh, sooner rather than later uh, than, uh. than pass them on. Well, he seems frisky as always to me. (laughs) Thanks so much to both of you. Uh, This is the May Issue Risk Management Monthly uh, signing off. Bye for now.
Bye bye. Bye bye.